What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Brian Slagaki. Uh, Brian is an unbelievable development coach. So, Brian, very excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Great. Looking forward to it. So, uh, before we get going, um, you're really great, but not enough people know you. So, let's let's start with a 30-second background story on your journey so far. Yeah, so um, I am born and raised in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I've been playing hockey practically my whole life living here, which is hard to believe for some people, but we do have ice out near the desert. Um, I grew up playing travel hockey. I spent um, four years playing club hockey for the University of Arizona, um, where I also got a degree in psychology with a minor in sports, sports management. After I graduated, I had a Pretty cool opportunity to spend an entire year um, training with Daryl Belfry. And um, I was on the ice with him four days a week. And I also got to watch him coach his daughter and a bunch of other other NHL players. Um, After that life-changing year, I spent one season playing in Sweden. Um, Almost played another season somewhere in Europe and maybe bounced around in the U.S. a little bit. But I came to realize around when I was 23, 24, that coaching is truthfully what I'm passionate about and teaching and sharing the game that I love. Um, so now for the last seven years or so, I have been coaching in Arizona with the Junior Coyotes program. Um, I'm currently the skills director for them. I coach multiple teams in the program. This past year, I worked with first-year squirts, 18s. From my skills job, I work with all the teams in the program, Um, But when I'm not doing that, and like this time of the year in the summer, I train NHL players, college players, junior players. Um, So there really isn't a player that I don't see. And uh, I've kind of worked with and I pride myself on my ability to work with every age and ability. That might be the most concise, beautiful background to date. Fantastic. Um, So you talked about having all of the age groups. So it, it's got to be a funny experience to maybe start the day nice and early with some NHL players. And then you've got all the work throughout the day and then ending with some squirts. So I think we should dive into how do you structure practices starting with the youngest ages, and then we can work our way up to the NHL players. Yeah. Um, and then maybe dive into what goes into a good skate for those guys. Okay. Um, so this past season, um, I had first year squirts, So all the kids were nine years old and what I've been researching a lot recently and really trying to dive into more is like 
constraints-based approaches and teaching games for understanding. So I spent a lot of time, a majority of the year, playing games and game-like drills um, instead of doing isolated technical drills. I know a lot of people at nine and 10 years old, like, you know, spend a lot of time doing skills and skills are no, no doubt absolutely important. Um, but I'm just under the impression now that they need to be in the context of the game. So we play every, every practice we had would start with some, some sort of game, whether that was like a time-based constraint game, or it was, you know, a three on two game, or, or there were so many different games that we played. And I started to see just a huge change in the player's understanding of the game. And especially coming from half ice on mites to full ice with squirts. Like I, I thought we were able to do some really cool things and, and we avoided a lot of the, you know, things where people think we just need to do stationary stick handling or up and down line skating for an hour, because we need to get, we need to master these skills before we put them into a game. And I, like I said, I really flipped that on its head and I thought it was, it was, the re the results were pretty remarkable um as and, i oh, sorry, and what, and, yeah and why do you think it was pretty remarkable compared to what you've done in the past um because i i noticed that the kids so they were using skills in these games and game-like situations that while they weren't pretty like for example like we played a lot of games where we had a very active stick pressure or i i put the kids under a lot of like a lot of pressure and they would have to make passes that were over the stick under the stick. And like our kids got very good at doing saucer passes and understanding why they would do them. Now, were they the prettiest saucer passes? No, a lot of the times they were just flips or, you know, they just kind of like rolled over the stick or they just were to an area. But my idea is that as long as they're making that pass, we can always improve the technical aspect but at least they know why they're using that. So, you know, when I start with a game and they're having difficulties in certain areas, I'll then go maybe for five to 10 minutes and isolate a skill. So let's say the saucer pass, for example, if they're really struggling with making that type of a pass, I'll split it up for five to 10 minutes, show them, Hey, here's what I, you're kind of should be doing, but I'm not going to spend an entire practice working on that. And so once, you know, we've spent that five to 10 minutes, I'm going to then go back to some sort of game. It's going to be way less stressful. And then I'm going to gradually add and add and add so that it becomes more of like a real game, but they're still using that skill. And, and the whole time it was wrapped around, like, why do you do a saucer pass? If that makes sense. Yeah. And I think you touched on something really important that I want to draw out and bring attention to is the idea of adding complexity, yep. like, I think it comes back to the cognitive load theory where you can only remember so much and yep. starting simple and then adding allows you to build up to that complexity without going straight there and just losing everyone and losing a lot of the details that go into it or the why behind it. Yeah. So there's, there's a few ways to approach that because, you know, I'll back up. There is no one best way to learn. And there are multiple ways to approach learning. And at times you do need to use different philosophies to teach. So at times, yes, we're going to start with one plus one and then gradually add till we're playing like a five on five game. But sometimes I will just throw them into the deep end and watch them struggle because 
I found, and I know many coaches as well, is players are more receptive to feedback once they've had some failure. So once they know that like, Hey, I, I don't, I can't figure this out. Coach, can you help me? That's a moment when I can now step in and be like, Hey, try this. This is going to help you. So then when they go back, now they're going to have successful. And I didn't necessarily have to like start from the scratch. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. And, it, and it's super important to get to the failure to get them almost to chase you a little bit, ask these questions, um, right. Where they have to seek it out. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm a big, I'm always asking players, what did you see? I, I want their feedback. I want them to question things because that shows me that they're engaged. So um, I'm, I'm very much looking for, for players to interact with myself. And um, I've really tried to move in the past year is move away towards a coach centered model and more towards an athlete centered model. And I know a lot of people say that, but I've really tried to embrace that. Like I, I, I don't have all the answers when I'm designing a practice or when I'm watching a drill or a game, I don't know what it feels like. I know what it looks like from afar, but when I ask the players, Hey, what did you see in that situation? I'm, I'm genuinely asking them, what did they see? And like trying to get them to understand that there's other options, but I've moved away from always dictating and telling them, Hey, here's the answer. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. At times I, I do need to be that person, but more often than not, I want co uh, players to, you'll say like implicitly find the information because anytime that you can struggle with information or struggle with a problem and figure out your own way implicitly. So like, you know, just by kind of having fun with it, as opposed to somebody telling you it, it's, you're going to remember that information much more deeper than if I were to tell you. Yeah. And man, there's, there's three keys that you just put in there. Uh, which one do I want to attack first? <laughs> Jeez. I, I, let's, let's go with uh, knowledge in the game versus knowledge of the game. Yep. And you, you talked about what did you see and asking questions and looking for feedback from the players because you don't understand what it feels like to them, yep. what they're experiencing um, and how key that is. So um, how about for our, our listeners, we start with knowledge in the game versus knowledge of the game um, and what that looks like from a definition and giving us a solid foundation here. Yeah. So I'll, I'll probably just slightly mess up the exact definitions, but like, knowledge of the game would be more of the definitions of the game or like I can explain, you know, like to use a, an analogy that I've learned from, you know, other is like a bat analogy. So I can tell you everything there is to know about a bat and it's, you know, where it's from, what it eats, all these things. That's knowledge of that bat, but I don't know what it's like to be a bat. So in, in a hockey sense, like, I can tell you everything about the game, but until you feel it, until you sense it, until you mess with it, you really don't understand the information that is in front of you. So our job as coaches is to make as much of the information of the game, like um, you have to experience it. Like, like you have to experience all aspects of the game if we want that though that information to transfer to a game um so instead of just trying to 
you know, give kids a bunch of skills or a bunch of definitions of what the game should be like. Let's have them experience the game and mess with it and play with it. And then let's interact with the kids and have them discover the answers on their own, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's kind of like the power of like video occlusion where they're starting to pick up the cues so they can experience it and get that pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. Um, That's absolutely massive. Yeah. So I like that. And then the other component and the word specifically that I want to pull out here is feel what it feels like. Can you maybe touch on from your perspective, the importance of feel within athletic expression, within teaching, et cetera. Yeah. So this is one thing I learned, like I would say one of the biggest takes takeaways I've learned from my year with Daryl is about becoming a feel-based athlete because I wasn't necessarily a feel-based athlete when I was training with him and his idea. And, and what I've come to realize is like some of the best athletes, they, they feel their way through drills or reps. So an example is when I was playing, I was more just like, I'm going to go as fast as I can. I'm going to do this drill. And I'm not really like, I'm not experiencing the drill. I'm, I'm more just getting through it. So if you were to ask me afterwards, like, how did that feel like? I'd be like, good. I I don't know. I I thought I had a good shot as opposed to a feel-based athlete. They're going to be able to tell you more like, ah, well, you know, when I was turning, I really felt like my weight was a little bit too far back. So I couldn't get my other foot to cross over. They're very in tune with how their body feels in certain situations so that when I talk to them, they're able to clue me in on very specific, like, um, information that I can then go back and cause I do a lot of stuff with video is I can look at the video and be like, Oh, I understand what you're saying. Or I can also say, yes, I saw what you felt. So now you and I are speaking the same language and we can make a change. If you don't feel what I'm asking you to change, it's going to be very difficult for us to make any meaningful changes. Because when I say, Hey, you're just, you know, with this pull in shot, for example, you need to drop more of your weight onto the shot. If, if you're going through your reps and you're just firing, 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 and going as fast as you can, and you don't know what it feels like to really drop onto your one leg or the other, then, like I said, you, you and I cannot, it's going to be a very time consuming process to change any habit. Yeah. And I know you've experienced this as much as I have when you're doing private lessons or even in a team environment getting players that can't feel to even feel just a little bit is a massive improvement in their ability to like teach themselves and be able to process the game in maybe more real time. Like they can feel through the situations, they can feel the pressure. They can read that awareness in the players have more of it. Like you said, those cerebral players, but the guys that can't feel the movements, it's really hard to get them to learn quickly. Like they're, they're very slow learners compared to people who can feel yes. very quickly or naturally. Like, yeah, I, me, I was actually, I was exper- uh, experiencing this this afternoon with a player who we were working on some court, some kind of like a pivot shot and I watched him do the rep and I, I didn't like the way that he was shooting. So I first, I asked him like, Hey, do you think you could change this? Like, you know, could you put, I, I want you to try to go right foot to left foot. So I showed him just kind of like off to the side 
he did a quick like feel through rep just right next to me so with no puck no shooting he just kind of tried it and then he went back to the drill he did it right i showed him on video and so that like we interacted with that feeling multiple times and he was able to make a correction in one or two reps as opposed to like like you said if, if he didn't take that time with me to feel it he may never correct that skill um and and to kind of expand on that that's why i i really enjoy working with players on year by year basis or having multiple sessions. Like if you just come out with me for one time, you may, you may think like, Oh, this was a good skate, but like, I I don't know, like it's just maybe like any other coach where I think I really, where my skill set is, is the more I start to skate with players, I really start to understand how they skate and what, how I can communicate with them. So when I'm talking with players who have been skating with for six months or a year or longer, that those players and I are on a very similar language and we share a lot of vocabulary so that when I tell them, this is what I'm seeing, are you feeling this? Like we're able to much more rapidly go through the learning process um, than compared, like you said, if they're just going through the drills as fast as they can. Yeah, and you also mentioned the, the feel through rep and I think that's great. But something I've keyed into when even doing like evaluations of players, whether it be in the tryout or you're just getting to know a team, like there are players that will naturally do this, um, yes. especially at the high. If you got a triple A team, I guarantee there's a kid on your team that does this in the back of the line. Like they, some, you know, the rep goes and they're not very happy with it. And you'll see him in the back of the line, kind of like doing the shoulders, maybe getting the feet going in it. And they're just yep. feeling through like what it would be like before they get on that next rep. So they've, they've almost like mentally put in three or four reps yes. in that one rep that they actually get. hundred percent. Some kids, and, and that's the interesting thing about development. Some kids are just, that's what they just do naturally. They don't think about it. They don't even, some might not even realize they're doing it, but they're getting in those extra reps. And actually, and this is the interesting thing about like studying psychology and the brain is like, those are real reps. You might not be physically going through all the motions, but when you're mentally rehearsing that information, you are sneaking in two, three, four more reps so that when you get to the front of the line, you've already had, you know, you have so many more reps than the kids who just get in line and they're just messing with each other. So it, it is certainly something that some kids are born with, but I shouldn't say born with that. They it becomes natural for them, but that's where I do, you know, this is the benefit of like studying and doing this for a living is I know that it is beneficial for kids and for players. So I highly encourage players while they're watching, try stuff, stick candle, like don't just sit there, like watch the drill, see what you like, see what you didn't like, like really engage. Like I'm huge into group learning. Um, so like, I think it's certainly something you can encourage in players, but like you said, yes, some players just do it naturally, which is, which is why there are some phenomenal players and some who are just average players and that's okay. Yeah. And, and I like where you talked about with group learning and I want to dive into this a little bit more because we touched on this a little bit earlier. It was one of the three points that I wanted to hit on was the telling versus asking. Like there are times to tell players because they don't have the background knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, there's many reasons for it that you want to tell. And then there's reasons when you want to ask, like say they have the background knowledge, but maybe they just haven't thought about it or, you know, it's like a little roadblock in their head. So, and and I'll I'll speak for me and then let you go here, but like, 
sometimes you need to draw the answers out and sometimes you need to tell them more often than not, you want to draw them out. But a lot of times it's, especially at the older ages, like they have some life experiences, they've had some other athletic experiences. Now we can start to draw out and seeing how they can apply things from other sports or other situations into the situation that they may not be having the success they want. And then some of the younger kids, like they don't even know the terminology, let alone what these repetitions look like, you know, as coaches and older folk, like we've seen a lot of hockey. These kids have yet to see that. Right. And and so that, that was one of the, I would say exciting things about going down and coaching with the younger kids is because I did feel like there's a lot of maybe misconceptions about coaching younger kids. And is that, you know, truthfully, they do know nothing about the game so that there is some positives and negatives about that. Like I actually, as a funny little story, um, I, I had all the kids playing all the different positions. And so I had some forwards playing D one game and one of our defensemen, keep in mind, he's nine years old. He was the first player on the four check. And I go, Hey, you can't be F1. Like you're just defensive. And he goes, what's F1? Like, so it, it's so easy to take for granted that like, you know, oh, we know all this information, but you're right. Some The kids don't know that information. Like they don't know the terminology. I would push back though, is when, when you ask the right questions or you ask guided questions, like I'm a big fan of guided discovery and guided learning. Like I do think you can guide players towards answers without giving them the answers. Um, cause I, I think a lot, a lot of coaches, um, they're very ego driven and they want to, they want to tell the, everyone, their players, how much they know. And so I've really tried to make it a point of mine this year that yes, I do have the answers for some of these, for some of these problems that I could solve it for you, but I'm going to put you in situations or ask you questions that it's up to you to like work through it. And I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'll hold your hand if you need me to, but I'm not going to be the one that's always pulling like the player. And it doesn't matter how old they are. Like you need to start learning and understand, you know, why we're learning this and ask the questions. So, so it is a process to get kids to understand that. But I don't think like, I, I, I have a, like a lot of coaches think that like kids are dumb and you can't teach them anything. And I just think that's outrageous. Like some of the stuff we got these kids to do this year was, was incredible because we gave them the freedom to do it and we encouraged them and we asked questions and we didn't ever assume that like they were too dumb to understand something. We just, in my approach, if you can't explain something simply enough, like you just don't know it. I mean, to steal an Albert Einstein quote or whatever, like you can teach all this stuff. You can teach hockey sense. It's just, do you know how to break it down for different ages and abilities? Sorry. I kind of went off on a tangent there. Uh, no, I, I love it. Cause I hundred percent agree with everything you just said there. And it, it gets me to something I've been thinking about for the Columbus hockey coaches summit this year of potentially doing, which is question asking for coaches. Like you may have the answer, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to help you work through it and maybe put you in some situations where you're forced to work through it, but I'm not going to give it to you straight up. You've got to work for it a little bit yeah. or the guided questioning, say between periods, like, Hey, what did we do? Well, what didn't we do? Well, and that's usually where people start is like these super broad, like what went, what went well out there. Oh, okay they're unlikely to get to the right answer that you're looking for. So maybe it's like, 
what went well on the breakout? Like that's much better. Like you want to be broad and open, but you need to give a little bit of focal uh, spotlight to what you're looking for, how you're trying to guide the group, what you want to influence performance wise or skill wise. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, so it's a good, it's a, it's a good subject. I know no, just, it is. It is. I'm just trying to like kind of collect my thoughts because it, it's so funny. Like every, cause every coach and parent experience, this is like, how was school today? Good. Well, you know, what'd you work on stuff? Like a, like, you know, a hockey example, what do we need to get better at for, for checking? Okay. What are we going to do today? Work, work hard. Like I tell my players all the time and they know this, and this is one reason why they've, they've learned to be more descriptive is I hate buzzwords because buzzwords are just like work hard, skate. Like they're just these generic terms that so many times coaches are just saying these things and the players know that the coach is looking for that. So they just say the buzzword back. So the coach just like moves on to the next subject. Like I'm never going to let a player, if I say like, Hey, what do we need to get better at? And he just says working hard. Okay. What does that, what does that mean? Like working hard to me and working hard to you is like completely different. And so this is a big thing that I spend a lot of time personally thinking about is like definitions, like definitions. And it is like so important because so many people don't realize that a lot of our conflict and issues between coaches and players comes down to a fact that we're actually speaking a different language. And, you know, when I say, work hard in my mind that's like a very I have a very specific image of what working hard is a 9 10 11 year old they don't know what that is so our issues are come from like not being and not speaking the same language so it's so important that the longer you spend with your athletes is you develop this like shared vocabulary so that when I say certain words it evokes the same meaning in you so I spend a lot of time like trying to get players to understand um, what our vocabulary is, but then back to what you're saying before is like getting them comfortable with going deeper into your thought process. Like I I want kids who are, tell me about how your school was today. What are you struggling with in history class? What, what is really difficult about this subject? Um, and, and getting them to like, and giving them the freedom and the room to explain themselves and not just scooting on to the next kid or like moving on to the next subject. And, you know, this is a kind of separate thing, but like one thing I always try to do with every player, every kid I work with um, is I try to find one thing that him and I have in common, whether that's, we both like to play video games. He likes the golf. He likes history. He likes this or this or that is I find one thing that we share in common so that whenever there's an issue that like, or whenever I feel like I'm not connecting with the player, I can always go back to that thing. Like, and, and kind of have like a playful, fun relationship about that subject. And that allows them to open up a little bit more and trust me and feel more comfortable with me. Um, so that's one way I've gotten past like just the buzzword stage, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just lazy. And, and I like what you talked about, like you're giving them freedom, but you're also forcing the deeper thought. So it's freedom with purpose, with thought, not just freedom, letting them off the hook, like you ask the question, therefore, eh, no big deal. Like if they yes. give a canned answer, like you need to be going deeper right yeah. now because there's either uncomfortability, there's mm-hmm. a lack of knowledge, or like we talked about with knowledge in the game versus knowledge of the game. They may, they may know what a bat is, but they don't know how it feeds or right. whatever the detail is you're looking for within there, or 
maybe they're thinking something deeper and through their just brainstorming as they're talking this through with you, they're finding solutions that maybe you didn't even think of. And it's even more genius. Yes. hundred percent. And I think that's, this is one of the, my favorite things about teaching and coaching is that it's an art. Like, yes, there are scientific principles behind engaging learners and stuff, but like this type of stuff comes from experience and it comes from interacting with kids. It's like, cause you're right. You can't like, you can't just expect every kid to be super engaged and be willing to share his thoughts. So as a coach or a teacher, when I'm asking kids or I'm putting them on a spot in front of all their peers, I have to understand that like, if this kid's not comfortable right now, I can't just keep pressing it and pressing and pressing him because he, he's going to have a bad experience. He's not going to want to share in the future. So our job is to like read the situation, you know, probe a little bit, push them a little bit outside their comfort zone, but you don't want the, that player to be in a pure panic. Like, Oh my gosh, all these players are looking at me. They're going to judge me. So our job, and this is, you know, my mom's a teacher and I've been around teachers my whole life. So I've spent time in the classroom is like understanding when you can press kids on like getting deeper information and when you need to like, Hey, I'm going to come back to you. Like, but you know, you're off the hook for now. I think the, the key component that we're kind of dancing around here is creating the psychological safety net. Um, And there's many ways to do it, whether you're letting them off the hook, like I'll come back to you, or maybe just give them a softball to end it. Like it's been hard. It's been hard. It's been hard. Okay. This one's an easy one. Hey, good job. And then move on to the next thing. And maybe another kid has got a, you know, maybe a better idea or you pull the group and you can find that one person who is right on it. Yeah. I think that, I think that's massive. And you just touched on the idea of the learning principles and, and, and kind of how we start to apply these. Um, And this could be within the practice. This could be within pulling knowledge or, you know, having them teach themselves basically. But I'm curious for you when you're talking and you've studied and you've been around these teachers, um, you know, what are some learning principles? And more importantly, once we have those principles, how do we actually apply them? So I feel like we talk a lot about different principles, but rarely do we talk about how they can be applied very effectively. Great question. And I'm fired up to answer it. So one of the biggest ones, one of the biggest teaching principles that a lot of people get wrong um, is blocked practices versus like a random or serial. Okay. Uh, blocked practices are you're going to do skill A, 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 and then B, 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 and then C, C, C in that order. It's very much, you know, what's coming next. You can prepare for it. Um, there's very little like variance in, in the, that style of learning and teaching a blocked practice is much, is going to be more, you're going to do skill A, C, B, A, B, C, B. It's much more kind of random. Um, and it's like, you're going to work on certain segments in a, in a blocked format. It's not just like complete chaos, but it is much more random than, um, the block practice. So here's an, here's a couple examples. One I like to use a lot. If I were to ask you what three times 15 is, you could probably, the first time it might take you some effort, but like you can come up with an answer, right? If, if I were to have you then continue to solve that same problem, three times 15, okay. Three times 15, three times 15. The first time is going to be difficult. The second time, not so much. 
And any consecutive time I ask you that after that, like you're not thinking your brain has literally like shut off in a sense, you don't have to um, devote any sort of mental processing to figure that out. Okay. That's not a very good way to engage learners and have them retain the information long-term. But if I were to have you solve three times 15, the next time is six divided by three, and then it's four times seven and ask you these questions in a kind of random order, but it's also around a similar subject. Every time you solve a problem, you're engaging your mental capacity at a higher level. So you're by struggling to solve the information, you're putting it more into like a long-term storage, if that makes sense. So in a hockey sense, and this is why I've gotten away from doing line drills or um, any sort of like stationary isolated drills is like a blocked isolated drill would be, okay, we're going to sit at this cone and we're going to toe drag and we're going to toe drag and we're going to toe drag until you quote unquote master the toe drag. Okay. How many times do you think a kid is going to do a toe drag before they're like, I'm bored with this? Like, it's not going to be very many, but the coach has this scheduled for five minutes. So they got to do five minutes of toe drag compared to if you were to do, okay, you're going to go, you're going to do a toe drag. Then you're going to do a crossover pivot. Then you're going to do open hips. Then you're going to do this. And then you're going to do this. They might not, they might not all be perfect skills, but by you having to uh, like approach a new problem each time, you're going to solve a different problem that information is going to be like, like I said before, it's going to be more into your long-term memory. So anytime we can move generally, the way that some people have described it is like, you use it like a, a knob, a knob of representativeness. A blocked practice is not representative of a game or a game-like situation. A, um, a sorry, um, so the goal would be is to move that knob you know, more often in the game or more often in your practices to represent a game. Now, are there times when you should go back and isolate a drill? Yes, but it should not be the majority of your practices. Um, That's the blocked and random is is a big one for me. And I know a lot of coaches spend a lot of time in their skill sessions in these blocked or um, yeah, in these blocked practices before they move on. That's excellent. Um, and I'll give you a few seconds to think of maybe another learning principle as I, I maybe throw one out here. That's uh, probably considered the same as what you're talking about, maybe slightly different, but the, uh, the idea behind going um, station-based practice where every station is something completely different versus maybe a station-based practice where it's the similar skill and it's kind of the randomization um, of, of a skill. So you're doing the same skill, but it's under different circumstances or it needs to be applied differently or the cues are slightly different where you're attacking the same skill, but it's not the exact same thing. It's, it's, uh, what is it? Repetition without being without repetition, repetition without repetition, I guess. Yes. That's yeah. No, that's, that's a great example because I know a lot of coaches like um, they, they have station-based practices. So, Hey, how can I just have a random practice if I have to split it up into four? So I would never, I I don't ever do more than two or three, like main emphasis or main skills for this practice. And, And this kind of fits into like what you're trying to do from a week or like monthly perspective. So choose your two or two skills. So for example, if, if I was working on stop turns or like, you know, change direction, 
Well, the thing with skills is like most skills are not necessarily location, you know, dependent, you know, some shooting skills are yes. Like you're not going to shoot in the defensive zone more or less, but like you're going to use a cutback in many different ways. You're going to use it below the goal line. If you're a defenseman, you're going to use it off the rush. If you're trying to delay. So you can design a drill or a station where it's like, you're going to use this stop turn to go get a puck, skate out of the corner, get a shot. Okay. Well then this next station is going to be, you're going to have pressure on you. It's a puck retrieval situation. You need to use this skill in this situation. And then maybe the other one, maybe the third station is like an isolated blocked. We're just going to, we're just going to work on it. And then you're going to go test, test, then you're going to come back and then you're going to test it. So like, that's one way that I might do it with like a team practice, but yes, you need to hide it or sneak it in many different ways because that's another way that kids are going to understand that like, well, it's going to be more ingrained in them if they know that there's multiple instances or multiple situations that it can use this skill, as opposed to like this skill you only use in this specific situation. Like, like that's just not, it's just not a recipe for learning. Yeah. It's like, it's like angling. Like everyone does angling as F1 on the four check type stuff. And it's like, well, what about the defenseman? Can they somehow learn to skate forward and, you know, nip it in the bud before it gets going. Yeah. Like how else can we do angling? And then if you watch the game enough, like, you're like, Holy crap, like angling's in literally every single frame in every single situation. Yeah. Um, another one now that I'm thinking about it. So a really good way to approach um, using this like blocked um, and random practice is is incorporating a concept called spacing um, and inter, interleaving is also a, a thing that you could incorporate with this, but the idea of spacing. So spacing is you're going to put time in between the reps of a certain skill. So let's say, and this could be in practice or on like a weekly or monthly basis. So let's say you start the practice with a certain skill. I wouldn't, and I never do hit that same skill for an hour straight. Okay. Like I think it's too, it's too repetitive. Kids are going to get bored with it. You have to change it up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with, you know, the one or two skills. I'll do that for 20 ish minutes or so, let's say in an hour practice, I'm going to, I might move to something completely different or something that I've been working on in the past. So this is also, I'm trying to retrieve information, which is a big component is like, you have to be able to recall information. So I'm going to go back to a drill or a skill or a game that I've done in, in the previous sessions to make their mind completely forget about the skill that they were just working on. So then after we play that game, we kind of let them like mentally like forget it. I'm going to then finish the practice with that same skill that I started with. So inside of that practice, they started with the skill. They saw a couple different ways. They forgot about it. They worked on another skill that we've been practicing. And then to finish the practice, they had to recall that information. So there was spacing between the information and that act of retrieving information after, after a certain period of time has been shown to be like, once again, highly correlated to long-term re retention. And so you can approach that, like, like I said, from a weekly, monthly basis, you can do it inside your drills. You can do it inside of a, a, a rotation of drills or space it out um, inside of your practices. Spacing is absolutely massive. Um, I mean, you, you touched on it, like just even checking to see if what we worked on last week is still there. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, we could really dumb this down or I guess simplify it down. I wouldn't say dumbing it down, but, you know, simplify it to the point of like, 
okay, how good was my teaching? Or do I maybe need to go back and did I do this well? Or do I need to space yeah. it quicker yeah, together? I mean, like could be whatever. Th- and this is this like this is what's so fun in my mind about coaching and teaching is so when I do retrieve that or say let's, you know, we were working on a certain type of game or skill last week. Now, this is where there's like some really interesting research on when you now pull that information or you want the kids to pull that back up and you're going to put them in a game that they saw before. Do you think like, should you prime all the kids with what they're about to do or let them figure it out? Now, sometimes it calls for priming the kids as in, hey, remember what we worked on last week. This is what we're going to do in this game. Now, there's certainly a time for that. But if you... And this is where you can use the concept of like quizzes and testing in a, in a, in a practice setting is I'm going to put you into a game that we played last week that requires a certain skill or whatever. I'm just going to watch. I'm going to drop the puck. I'm just going to watch. I'm not going to say anything after five, 10 minutes. I'm now going to pull everybody in. Hey guys, what do you think we're trying to do in this game? What are we trying to work on? What do you notice? What skill is beneficial here? And then hopefully if, if I've done my job and they're learning and and they have learned, they're going to be like, this is like the game we played last week because we're trying to change sides when we move the puck. This is like, so they should start to understand if, if they know it, they'll understand what we're, what we're trying to do without me telling them. And so this gets back to that, like coach versus athlete centered model. Like if I prime them with too much information and tell them, this is what I'm looking for. I rob them of an opportunity to retrieve that information for themselves. And like I said before, anytime you can retrieve the information yourself, as opposed to being told the information, you're going to remember it. It's going to become more hardwired into your brain for that, you know, to use that. All right. Now, now that we've gotten completely off the reservation from original question, uh, I think it's time to go back to it. Okay. Uh, after doing all those deep dives, but I, we, we couldn't not attack those. Let's be honest here. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to refresh here, since we're now spacing this out and let me prime you with what we need to get done here. Uh, we talked about structuring practices and working with players from age nine up to the NHL. So we talked about you starting with CLA and that's kind of where we went, uh, last time. So how do we, uh, again, structure practices from age nine all the way up to the NHL? Yeah, so I'll talk about um, NHL and kind of guys like that. So obviously, it depends on the time of the year. Um, I'm not going to do, if I'm working with NHL players in season, that it's not really a time to be changing um, habits. Like, this is what they get paid to do for a living. So I can't tell certain players that I'm working with, Hey, why don't you try this way of shooting that you're not really good with? That's going to affect your shooting for six months. So anytime it's in season, it's going to be more like, you know, there's going to be some, some minor tweaks, but it's more or less going to be like, some people would call it maintenance practices. So it's like a lot of puck touches. They're going to touch, they're going to shoot a lot. Um, they're going to have a good sweat, but it's not going to be as physical, um, psychologically demanding if um so in the summer though as we progress and this is what i'm doing more now like so now it's now we're going to try to change the way you do certain things we have the time we've got a couple months you know you understand by coming to me that like we want to like change a habit so if i'm if i'm working with a small group or like a private session 
a lot of what we're going to do is more of the technical aspect of the game. It, it's very difficult if you're working with one player or two players to do like a game representative representative practice. It's just you don't have enough players. So um, what I've started to do recently is with, you know, if you have six to 12 players, which is I think is like a perfect amount, is you can incorporate a lot of skill work. So you can have them break down the way they shoot, trying to change the way they skate, you know, make them more efficient skaters, stronger skaters. But at the end of the day, like these guys also want to compete. They want to skate, they want to sweat, like they want to work. So the way I approach like a summer skate right now with these level of players is it's a mix of competition and games and skills. So we'll have moments when we're going to slow it down and really break it down, but then I'm probably going to finish or start practice with like an up-tempo game. Like these are some of the best players in the world or, you know, trying to become like they want to compete. They want to play hockey. They're not out here to just, you know, skate for an hour. Like let's compete and have fun. Time out. We can have fun while improving. hundred percent, hundred percent. If you're not having fun, like, I, I mean, you have to enjoy it. Like changing habits, working is difficult. And so as best as I can, I'm going to create a fun environment, um, for all ages. It doesn't matter NHL, you know, nine years old, like at the core idea, like hockey should be fun when, when it's fun, you're more willing to work hard. Now that doesn't mean it's always sunshine and rainbows, but like you need to enjoy the process of getting better because it is a long process, especially if you're starting young. So as best as I can to just like, like, for example, okay, today, I started the practice with a, with a football type of game. I had one player be quarterback. He lined up on the blue line and I had a wide receiver and a defensive back. This was our warmup. Okay. We're playing football. So what I did is I gave the quarterback like five seconds. He had to back up, kind of keep his feet moving the wide receiver, whatever you want to do. You got to try to get open. You got five seconds, defensive player. You got to stay with them. And like, it was so, even one of the players was like, this is different. This is fun. It just is something different to engage them as opposed to always starting with the same boring. We're going to go up and down the ice, like just throw something different at them. Like these sports should be fun. It doesn't always have to just be like work, 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 work. Like the working should be fun and it can be fun. It's, it's absolutely like, it's a no brainer for me. I, I like that you're playing football. I literally had a team once. Um, we were the using same- pucks though, but we, yes, yeah, a football like game. Oh, no, no. I literally had a player that would bring out a football and we always had um, the ability to get the ice five, 15 minutes prior to our actual scheduled practice time. So I'm going to give them the ice to do whatever they want. And uh, he literally would bring out a football and somehow the team would start playing football on this big Olympic sheet before practice. It was hilarious. But uh, a lot of fun. And they were they had energy when that practice started. Let me tell you. hundred. I mean, and this is another thing that like like it's a couple things with that. Like, so when you're playing one-on-one against somebody and you're play, and you're backwards, they're forwards, you're warming up your skating skills. You're working on, and that's the thing that like, I like the players don't necessarily know, but what I'm doing in that game is actually what we're going to try to get to in our practice. It's not the exact same thing, but like, for example, so we did some, a lot of like inside edge work today. So the job of the forward of a wide receiver is I said, you just got to get open. I don't care what you do. You got to get open. You think they were using their inside edges to get open? Absolutely. And they didn't realize it though. So then when we went back to it or like 
we started using our inside edges, they were more engaged with it. They understood like, oh, I can use this to be deceptive. So it's like there was an underlying principle that I was trying to attack, but it was also a fun game. And just one more thing with like starting fun and which I realized with kids is like, so kids spend eight hours or whatever, seven hours sitting at a desk in school, being told exactly what to do. They don't have very, they have very little freedom. Like recess is like not a thing anymore. And so when they come to practice, the last thing that they want to do is sit in line, be told what to do. Like they want to play the game. So every practice I do, we're going to play a game right off the hop. And one of the biggest reasons I do it, one is because it's fun. But like you said, it also it just, the energy is crazy. Like the kids are so hyped up to be on the ice that if you burn through that energy for 10, 15 minutes, I've also found the kids are much more easier to manage. But if you don't let the kids play a game for 30, 45 minutes, they're just going to be itching. They're going to be bugging their teammates. They're going to be trying to wrestle each other. But if you get that energy burst out of the way right away, the kids behave and pay attention much better because they had that fun and they got that excitement as opposed to just okay, we're going to go up and down the ice. And then we're going to do like, that's boring. Like kids want to play. Like, let's let them play. Just let them play. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we've talked about the little kids, um, a lot of CLA. We talked about the big kids, a lot of competition, maybe a little bit of CLA in there, but you know, more focused practice. They're able to do that and, you know, yep. have the discipline. What about that middle age? So say we're, um, let's go with age 14 to 16. Mm-hmm. Um, this, it is a, so I've head coach and assistant coach this age group for the last four or five years. And it, it's a very, it's a very interesting age group. Um, cause I've noticed that at about 14 years old, you start to see who really wants to be a hockey player and who just wants to play hockey. And I'm totally fine with players who just want to have fun and enjoy the game. Like, I think that's great. But if you want this to become like your life and you want to become a professional player, like at 14, 14 years old, like it needs to start becoming who you are as a person. Like you're starting to sleep better. You're starting to eat better. You're training better. You're taking it more serious. You're watching the game. So I found at that age, you, you really start to see like, like glimpses of like, wow, this kid, like he wants it. And so those kids, I gravitate a lot towards because they're so close and like so close to being, you know, in juniors or college or whatever. And they just, the top kids really crave information. And for the most part, you know, they haven't really gotten a lot of like elite high level hockey knowledge yet. You know, in some cases, some kids have been blessed with like great coaches all the way through, but at the 14, 15 year eight, like they're starting to get stronger. You can really work on like, like you can just really start to break the game down more for them. They're, they're more mentally mature. So they want to pay attention. Um, so, so I, I mean, I enjoy coaching all the ages, but like, I, I have a, a fondness for that age just because the, the kids re- like, you really start to see who, who wants it and who's willing to go through some, some uncomfortableness in the current moment to get what they want long-term. With that, I think there's a key component of stubbornness while sometimes frowned upon might be one of the 
better traits to have for an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about personality, you know, we can go many places, but I, I appreciate a good stubborn player. I think a lot of coaches and parents are like, they're not that coachable, but I think they're actually extremely coachable and are really good because I, I call it the stick to itness. Like they have the stick to itness. Like I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. And they do. And they progress really, really well. So um, stubborn kids, I'll, I'll take those all day. Yeah. I mean, if you look at any elite legendary athlete, it's their ability to, I mean, everybody knows the story of like grit, like the, the, the kids who are willing and they don't have this fixed mindset um, versus like a growth mindset, like the kids who believe that they can get better by working, like those are the kids who are going to keep getting better. But if you have this mindset that like, oh, I'm just always a crappy skater, I'm just always like, I'm not good enough. Like you're not going to continue to go far. So yes, the players, they do need to have this, this stubbornness and this willingness to like push back a little bit because they also at that age, they're starting to know who's kind of full of it and who's not because beforehand, like at younger ages, kids respect you because you're an adult and you're, you know, that's just most kids respect adults if, if you are in the right setting. But at that age, they can start to see who, who actually cares, who knows what they're talking about, who can actually demonstrate certain things. So you're right. Like they, some, to some coaches, those kids are not coachable, but the kids who, who want to get better and see that you're interested in getting better will gravitate towards you because they understand that like you can be a key for them to, you know, continue moving forward. So yes, you do certainly the, I mean, every attribute has its continuum. You know what I mean? Like you obviously can't be too stubborn that you're not willing to change your game, but you need to be stubborn enough that you're willing to like, like you said, stick with a problem, not like, Elite players are not satisfied with good enough. Like they, they want to perfect quote unquote perfect skills. And so you need to be able to like, like continue and just work and work and work and work and just not take no for an answer sometimes. Excellent. Next place I want to go with this since we're getting through like none of the questions um, because there's just so many good nuggets and rabbit holes to go down. But I, I finally think we can move forward a little bit. Um, what I want to talk about and something that you and I are both passionate about is being very specific with feedback. Like players know when they make a mistake and you touched on it earlier, like you got to work harder. Okay. What does that mean? You got to be harder on pucks. Like that's my personal favorite. We got to be harder on pucks. Uh, okay. Thank you. Captain obvious. Um, I don't think you're exactly helping. It's like just adding more stress to your players. Yes. Yes. And, and like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Like, and that's the, so, so, so many things are just like hockey, just like buzz phrases that people just love throwing out that like nobody knows what they really mean. But um, yes, 100%. And so a example that we were talking about earlier that I like to use is like when a kid, you know, is going down on the ice, he's on a breakaway or he's taking a shot and he misses the net and he comes to the bench and you tell him, hey, you missed the net. Like you should have scored. Like obviously like, the kid knows that like the kid knows that you don't have to tell it doesn't matter what age like the kid knows he made a mistake so your job as a coach is not to tell them what they did wrong is to explain to them hey the reason why you missed the net is because you didn't set your feet properly you didn't do this like here's the reason why the, here's the specific this is why you missed the net 
And that's actually actionable. And so anytime you're going to give feedback to a player, like it needs to be actionable. And, and yes, with the younger ages, like sometimes they don't know that they made a mistake. Like for example, let's say just like a positioning thing. So that's where you can pull them aside and explain that to them. Um, but more often than not, if it's like a mistake of execution, you just need to explain how to make that skill um, better. So like a phrase that I like to really use is, so did, did the player make read and had poor execution or did the player have a bad read and bad execution? If the player made the right read and they just had poor execution, well, that's okay. We can live with that. Like, you know, the puck bounced and they just couldn't score. Like, that's okay. But if you made the wrong and the wrong execution, well, that's where there's a moment for me to teach, explain like, hey, you made this mistake because you, were, you weren't in correct position. Here's what you should do next time if this situation happens. So it is, like you said, much more specific. It's actionable. There's like a, um, and, you know, and, and through that process, I'm also checking to understand one of my favorite things to do once I'm done talking to a player is like, hey, okay, what did I just tell you? I asked them to, in their own words, you just listen to me. Now tell me what I just told you. And so many times when I ask them these questions, the kids will look back and they're like, uh, I don't know. So they don't like that, that information that I was trying to pass to them didn't transfer. So I'll explain it again. So I'm looking for at the end of a discussion with a player is like, tell me in your words, what I just told you. And if it's remotely close to what I was trying to get through, we're good. That was a teaching moment. You understand. And ways to like work on that or in like to, I would say to give feedback is, and this is something that I've learned from John Wood and other coaches is like the sandwich technique, which we were talking about earlier is it's a positive, negative, positive, or like, yes, no, yes. So for example, I love the way you back checked so hard to get that puck. But when you got the puck, you know, you pass the puck to the middle of the ice and that's how they scored the goal. But I love how much you, you worked hard to get back. Here's what you should do next time. So I praise them for the effort, which is really important. I pray for being in the right spot. I gave them or I sandwiched the critique. Hey, this is what I don't want to see. And then at the end, like I sandwiched the positive so that the whole experience was more of a, is a learning opportunity as opposed to you suck. You didn't do this. Like kids aren't going to learn that way. Like they need to be rewarded for the things that they do do well. Um, and even if it's something small, find something small that a player did well and encourage that behavior. Like players learn more and are going to repeat behaviors that the coach like approves of. But if you're always just saying, don't do this, don't do that. Like there are a million things you shouldn't do on a nice rink. But if you say, I love the one we back check the middle. I love when you shoot, you know, to score. I love when you take the body, like players are going to do those things more because that's what the coach wants. So tell players what you want to see, not what you don't want to see. Wow. Um, yes. Tell them what you want to see. Now what you don't want to see powerful stuff there. Um, and just the idea for those players, right? Like that's new and exciting compared to, Oh, I got to fix this. Right. And, new and, new and exciting is way more transferable. Yeah. And, and like, and I, and I've experienced this this season and it, and it was like crushing for me as a coach, it was like absolutely crushing. So I was watching a practice and one of the 
these kids, he, he messed up a drill and the coach is just like, he's, he's given it to kid. He's just like, what are you doing? You made like, and he, and he come, the coach comes in after he says, see, this is just dumb. He just doesn't get it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to skate over to the kid. I'm going to try to just talk to him. I'm approaching the kid. I haven't said a single word to him. And he looks at me and he knows who I am. He looks at me, drops his shoulders and goes, what did I do wrong now? And I'm like, whoa, like this kid's whole perception of what a coach is, is that I'm about to like reprimand him. I'm going to tell him what he did something wrong. Like, that's terrible. Like that was one of the hardest things I experienced this year is like, like, that's not how a coach and a teacher should be. So I went over to it. I'm like, I'm not here to like tell you, you did it wrong. Like, here's what you could have done. Here's what you should try. Like, what do you think? And like, you could see this whole like breath of fresh air because I wasn't like, you know, the interactions where we have players, like, like certain things they don't know. It's, it's not that they're trying to mess up drills or they're like, like our job is to be, and this is where, you know, I come from a, a softer side and I'm not, you know, a hard ass on certain occasions, but, but I can be, it's like, our, our job is to, to support and encourage and develop. And that doesn't come from a place of negativity and putting kids down. Like you need to support these kids as best you can. And that comes from a, a positive place in my opinion. Yes. Um, we can continue down this road, but I, I've got some other things that you mentioned uh, within this rant that we need to unpack. And the idea when you talked about, okay, good read or poor, and poor execution or bad read and poor execution, or maybe it was a bad read and good execution. Like mm-hmm. what are we actually coaching? Are we coaching results or are we coaching the process? Right. And we obviously, you and I know, which is more important, which is really coaching effort and process. Like, I don't like, yes, you need to get results and it helps within the teaching and it's sticking well, but if you do the process well, if you're putting in the effort, things are going to fall your way more often than not. So when a player makes a mistake, but the read was good, I, I don't know about you. I'm backing off. Like, Hey, maybe I'll say something. If they, they look dejected when you get back to the bench, like, Hey, that was a great read. You'll get the execution next time. Those types of things rather than it worked. Yay. I'm happy versus it didn't work. Uh, I'm angry. Cool. That, you know, a few things on that. And I, and I tell players this all the time. It's like so many things players do are, it, it depends on whether or not the move that you did was successful. And this is what's so funny about being a coach. It's like sometimes going between your legs when you're across, you know, coming across the goal line is the right play. Now, if you score, the coach isn't going to say anything to you. He's going to be like, wow, that was incredible. What do you think is going to happen if you don't score and you shoot it over the net? What do you think you're doing? Why would you ever do that? So it's, it's, it's just so funny that like so many of the things players do are just dependent on whether or not it was successful. So I've really tried to take into approach that like, well, was it like, like you said, like, is this the only option he had at the time? Yes. It was a fancy move, but like, was that the only play available? Like, you know, and maybe it was. And so good job on you for reading the play. Like that, that was a great job. And another thing I do, you know, as far as like when giving feedback, when players come to the bench, and this is what I've done a lot with these, these younger kids is I tell certain kids, Hey, I want you to go tell that kid, like, go tell him, go support him, go talk to him, go tell your teammate. That was a good play. Like go, um, you know, pump your teammate up. And what I started to notice is 
you know, the first couple months, it was definitely forced by me. But then naturally over time, if a kid had a rough shift and say he came to the bench and he was in tears or something, the kids would all go over and support him. Hey, I got you. You got me. Like, so it was just incredible. Like I said before, because I encouraged that behavior and because I was, I was adamant that that's what I wanted to see. The players started to do it more. And so I don't have to sometimes tell players certain things. And like, and the best part is like this summer, we've been playing some games and I've been, I've been trying to get them to understand how to play um, like just kind of like drop in hockey. Like a, a lot of kids, it's amazing. They've never just like played pickup hockey and they don't know, like you shouldn't take a five minute shift, for example. And so the kids now, because we've been playing it longer, they're starting to hold each other accountable. Like, Hey, that was too long of a shift. You need to come off the ice. And like, I know that's not that big of a deal, but the fact that like the kids are starting to interact with each other and I don't have to like, I don't have to coach every moment. Like I've coached these kids and encouraged them to speak up in certain situations that now they feel comfortable in those situations, being a leader and like, you know, having that responsibility. Oh man, now 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 you just opened an entire Pandora's box talking about the off ice and the leadership and all the life skills that come through sports and hockey in general. Yep. Dang it, Brian. Uh yeah, save that for next time. Okay. Um, the last thing I want to say and bring up is the piece you talked about for checking for understanding. Okay. Um, because this is my largest pet peeve, I think, in all of coaching is when you get done explaining something or asking a question and they do something. And at the very end, the coach goes, any questions? And I want to rip my eyeballs out and set my ears on fire. Just watching no one. And they're all, and they kind of look at each other too. And they're just looking over like, no one's going to say anything, right? We're just going to move on here. And you can see almost like the gears are rolling, like, yeah, I kind of get it, but I really don't get it. And we just move on. And then, you know, like the first rep's going to be absolutely atrocious and we got to blow it dead. And then we got to re-explain it, blah, blah, blah. All because we did a poor job of checking for understanding, asking the worst question possible, which is any questions or, yes. or even, or let me raise the stakes even, even more. Does this make sense? Does that make sense? Like, like yeah. It's just, it, both of those for me are kind of like the cliches, like, Yes, I get where you're coming from, but it's lazy. It's like the uh, my personal favorite, living the dream. I'm just living the dream. How's it going? Living the dream, coach. Like, all right, I don't know anything about what your day is, and you're probably having a bad one. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's very funny. And I know so many coaches, I kind of always laugh about this, because they don't check for understanding and because they just assume all the kids know because nobody spoke up. And I'm, and I'm sure you've seen this before is, so in the locker room, they'll go over the drill so, or the practice plan. They'll go onto the ice. They'll explain everything again. Okay, remember, we're going to do this. Or like, they'll go to the board to explain it again. The kids mess it up. So now they have to go back to the board. Like I've seen so many practices just break down because coaches went through stuff too quickly and just assumed everybody understood it. And they end up spending even longer trying to explain certain things or they just move on because they get frustrated as opposed to, you're right. Like what I try to do at the end of every little speech or any practice that, you know, I'm explaining is, Hey, Bob, okay. What is the forward going to do in this drill? Um, you know, and he might not know. And then I'll be like, okay, Hey, 
Steve, help help him out. Okay, well, he's going to do this. Okay, hey, Bob, what did he say? And I'll go back to that kid. Okay, he's going to do this. Okay, now what are they like? And then I'll ask this there. And then I'll sometimes be like, hey, goalies, what are you guys like? What are the forwards doing in this drill? So, because a lot of times, like, and this is something I've learned from teaching um, and like the teaching side of it is if you ask, okay, does anybody have any questions or, you know, raise your hand if you have the answer? Well, if, if I say raise your hand, if you have an answer, only the person who knows the answer is going to raise their hand and all the other kids are going to get, this, this is like where you sneak in extra reps, like all the other kids who didn't raise their hand, guess what they didn't do? They didn't have to think about, like really think about what coach is asking. So instead, and this is, like I said, something you do in teaching is like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do in practice. I'm going to call on one of you guys. I need you guys to have an answer for me for what we're going to do. So now when I do that and I say, I'm going to call on somebody. So I expect you to have an answer. What do they have to do now? They have to think in their minds, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing. And if I call them out and they don't understand it, they look a little silly and their teammates might even razz them a little bit. And like we said earlier, I'm not going to probe them and be like, you know, be mean on them, but like, we will like, Hey, this is what we talked about. We wanted everybody to be paying attention. You weren't paying attention. Like you need to pay attention. And so it's a way for us, you know, to have all the kids come up with an answer as opposed to just saying, Hey, does anybody have any questions or Hey, who has the answer to this? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Perfect. Thanks for uh, ending on my favorite pet peeve. You're my, you're my guy. Well, you, you um, know, like that's, it's just funny how that's another thing about the English language. It's like so many things when we're speaking with each other and, and this is the difficulty of doing this over zoom is so much of language. And this is so much of language is nonverbal. If I think it's like 60, 70, I might be off on that, but it's like, 60% of what we do and when we're in, interacting with somebody is, is nonverbal. It's the tone in my voice. It's what I'm doing with my hands. When you are devoid of that information, yeah, 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 I know. Like, see, you look like crazy, right? And I get that picture now. So, like, I don't really know where I was going with that. But when I don't have that sort of, I can't see you nodding your head or having you have that interaction with me, it's much more difficult to know if you are understanding. Great, great. It took me this entire time to realize my video was off. I thought your video was off for no good reason. And we're over an hour in and I'm now just being like, I just forgot today. I guess next time. Yeah, got to be graceful on yourself. Usually uh, in my past life, and especially as a player, be like, ah, I'm an idiot. But more grace these days, yeah. uh, as we do with our players and with ourselves. So um, this was awesome. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad we kind of ended on one of my favorite topics of like permission versus pressure. Like, what are you doing as a coach? Are you creating permission or are you creating pressure for your player and what's needed in the situation? So um, fantastic stuff here. Two minutes. The floor is yours. Anything you want to talk about? Any shout outs? Uh, yeah. Whatever you want to talk about. It's all yours. Um, I think what I would leave with is, it's so important to look like this is what I do for a living. Like hockey is what, and teaching is what I do for a living. And I understand that there's other coaches who like, this is not what they do for a living. Like they have a, another full-time job and they're just volunteering. And so I was, I totally respect that, but like, right. Totally respect it. But in my opinion, there are, there are many ways to approach coaching and teaching, but there are better and worse ways. 
And so it should be our job is to find the best ways or better ways to teach kids to learn and, you know, to raise and develop kids because there are research backed and evidence-based ways to approach those things. So I get frustrated when, and, and not that you need to be up to date with the most recent things, but when, when I see players or coaches not doing in my mind, fundamental, like, how are you messing this up? And, and that's where I always have to kind of pull myself back and be like, well, this is what I do all day long. I read and I study and I research and I'm like, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, look outside of just hockey. Like, don't just, and I know a lot of people say this, but it's like, I learn from teaching, from history, from other sports, from football, baseball, other coaches, like other programs. Like you can't just have your sport or your domain be the only thing you're, you understand because you're going to, you're going to very much silo yourself. And it's, there's so much information out there that you're crazy to not look at other sports or other people who've done things differently and, and learn from them. So I, I just would encourage people to step outside of what they're normally used to and um, yeah, just kind of take and steal things like stealing is a good thing. Like, I, I don't have any, I don't have a lot of answers, but like I've stolen a lot of stuff and I've read a lot of stuff and hopefully tried to turn it into my own thing. But like, you're crazy if you're not stealing from other people in other sports. Yeah. And I, I will, can, I'm going to add on top. I never do the stand, but I'm going to add on top here. Just give, give, give yourself some grace. I think like Brian's very accurate here. Like try to continue to get better. And you're obviously listening to this podcast. You're on that path, but you don't have to be perfect. Uh, my practices are definitely not perfect. I don't think anyone's are, but as long as you're heading in the right direction, you're taking a lot of these teaching lessons that Brian has laid down today. Like you're doing well, you're going to be improving your kids. They're going to be having a good life experience that they're going to want to continue to come back to the ring. Like those types of things really matter. And don't, don't feel like, Oh man, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm the worst thing since sliced bread. Like you're you're doing okay here. Which, which way are you trending? Like, that's always like, like you can, it's like in the stock market, like you can have your ups and downs, but like you want to be going up and to the right. Like you just want to be trending as a player. You're always just like, I'm trying to get better. There's going to be crappy days, crappy weeks, crappy years, but like, I'm still inching up into the right. Like I'm just, it's, I'm trending in the right direction. Like that's, that's what my, your mindset is like, you're right. Cause you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to know all the answers, but you just try to get a little bit, little bit, little bit, 1%. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember, do you remember the movie, uh, despicable me? I do. Okay. There's, there's a villain in that movie called vector. He's got direction and magnitude. Mm-hmm. out there for your, your math nerds. That's, that's what we're looking for. Direction and magnitude, 1% per day in Brian's speak. Uh, Vector from Disciple Me because I'm a child inside. So, Brian, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, whenever you come up with the next topic you want to talk about, clearly we, we can fill time and drop a lot of great knowledge and information on people. So uh, welcome back anytime, anyplace. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. Definitely. We'll have a second one. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it.
Catch you, Buttes, here next week for a brand new episode.